Chapter 4 Walking somewhat slowly by reason of his concentration, the boy, an ancient man in some phases of thought, much younger than his years in others, was overtaken by a light-footed pedestrian whom, notwithstanding the gloom, he could perceive to be wearing an extraordinarily tall hat, a swallow-tailed coat, and a watch-chain that danced madly and threw around scintillations of skylight as its owner swung along upon a pair of thin legs and noiseless boots. Jude, beginning to feel lonely, endeavored to keep up with him. Well, my man, I'm in a hurry, so you'll have to walk pretty fast if you keep alongside of me. Do you know who I am? Yes, I think. Physician Vilbert? Ah, I'm known everywhere, I see. That comes of being a public benefactor. Vilbert was an itinerant quack doctor, well known to the rustic population, and absolutely unknown to anybody else, as he, indeed, took care to be, to avoid inconvenient investigations. Cottagers formed his only patients, and his Wessex-wide repute was among them alone. His position was humbler, and his field more obscure than those of the quacks with a capital and an organized system of advertising. He was, in fact, a survival. The distances he traversed on foot were enormous, and extended nearly the whole length and breadth of Wessex. Jude had one day seen him selling a pot of colored lard to an old woman as a certain cure for a bad leg, the woman arranging to pay a guinea, in installments of a shilling a fortnight, for the precious salve, which, according to the physician, could only be obtained from a particular animal which grazed on Mount Sinai, and was to be captured only at great risk to life and limb. Jude, though he already had his doubts about this gentleman's medicines, felt him to be unquestionably a travelled personage, and one who might be a trustworthy source of information on matters not strictly professional. "'I suppose you've been to Christminster, physician?' "'I have many times,' replied the long, thin man. "'That's one of my centres.' "'It's a wonderful city for scholarship and religion?' "'You'd say so, my boy, if you'd seen it. "'Why?' The very sons of the old women who do the washing of the colleges can talk in Latin. Not good Latin, I admit, as a critic. Dog Latin, cat Latin, we used to call it under m in my undergraduate days. And Greek? Well, that's more for the men who are in training for bishops, that they may be able to read the New Testament in the original. I want to learn Latin and Greek myself. A lofty desire. You must get a grammar of each tongue. I mean to go to Christminster some day. Whatever you do, you say that physician Vilbert is the only proprietor of these celebrated pills that infallibly cure all disorders of the elementary system, as well as asthma and shortness of breath. Two and three pence a box, specially licensed by the government stamp. Can you get me the grammars if I promise to say it hereabout? I'll sell you mine with pleasure, those I used as a student. Oh, thank you, sir said Jude gratefully, but in gasps, for the amazing speed of the physician's walk kept him in a dog-trot, which was giving him a stitch in the side. "'I think you'd better drop behind, my young man. Now, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get you the grammars and give you a first lesson, if you'll remember, at every house in the village, to recommend Physician Vilbert's golden ointment, life drops, and female pills.' "'Where will you be with the grammars?' 
I shall be passing here this day fortnight at precisely this hour of five and twenty minutes past seven. My movements are as truly timed as those of the planets in their courses. Here I'll be to meet you, said Jude. With orders for my medicines? Yes, physician. Jude then dropped behind, waited a few minutes to recover breath, and went home with a consciousness of having struck a blow for Christminster. Through the intervening fortnight, he ran about and smiled outwardly at his inward thoughts, as if they were people meeting and nodding to him, smiling with that singularly beautiful irradiation which has seemed to spread on young faces at the inception of some glorious idea, as if a supernatural lamp were held inside their transparent natures, giving rise to the flattering fancy that heaven lies about them, then. He honestly performed his promise to the man of many cures, in whom he now sincerely believed, walking miles hither and thither among the surrounding hamlets as the physician's agent in advance. On the evening appointed, he stood motionless on the plateau, at the place when he had parted from Vilbert, and there awaited his approach. The road physician was fairly up to time, but to the surprise of Jude on striking into his pace, which the pedestrian did not diminish by a single unit of force, the latter seemed hardly to recognize his young companion though with the lapse of the fortnight the evening had grown light. Jude thought it might, perhaps, be owing to his wearing another hat, and he saluted the physician with dignity. "'Well, my boy,' said the latter abstractedly. "'I've come,' said Jude. "'You? Who are you? Oh, yes, to be sure. Got any orders, lad?' "'Yes.' and Jude told him the names and addresses of the cottagers who were willing to test the virtues of world-renowned pills and salve. The quack mentally registered these with great care. And the Latin and Greek grammars? Jude's voice trembled with anxiety. What about them? You were to bring me yours, that you used before you took your degree. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Forgot all about it. All. So many lives depending on my attention, you see, my man, that I can't give so much thought as I would like to other things. Jude controlled himself sufficiently long enough to make sure of the truth, and he repeated in a voice of dry misery, You haven't brought them? No. But you must give me some more orders from sick people, and I'll bring the grammars next time. Jude dropped behind. He was an unsophisticated boy, but the gift of sudden insight which is sometimes vouchsafed to children, showed him all at once what shoddy humanity the quack was made of. There was to be no intellectual light from this source. The leaves dropped from his imaginary crown of laurel. He turned to a gate, leant against it, and cried bitterly. The disappointment was followed by an interval of blankness. He might, perhaps, have obtained grammars from Alfredston, but to do that required money and a knowledge of what books to order. And though physically comfortable, he was in such absolute dependence as to be without a farthing of his own. At this date, Mr. Philotston set for his pianoforte, and it gave Jude a lead. Why should he not write to the schoolmaster and ask him to be so kind as to get him the grammars in Christminster? He might slip a letter inside the case of the instrument, and it would be sure to reach the desired eyes. Why not ask him to send any old second-hand copies, which would have the charm of being mellowed by the university atmosphere? To tell his aunt of his intention would be to defeat it, 
it was necessary to act alone. After further consideration of a few days, he did act, and on the day of the piano's departure, which happened to be his next birthday, clandestinely placed the letter inside the packing case, directed to his much-admired friend, being afraid to reveal the operation to his Aunt Drusilla, lest she should discover his motive and compel him to abandon his scheme. The piano was dispatched, and Jude waited days and weeks, calling every morning at the cottage post office before his great-aunt was stirring. At last, a packet did indeed arrive at the village, and he saw from the ends of it that it contained two thin books. He took it away into a lonely place and sat down on a felled elm to open it. Ever since his first ecstasy, or vision of Christminster, and its possibilities, Jude had meditated much, and curiously, on the probable sort of process that was involved in turning the expressions of one language into those of another. He concluded that a grammar of the required tongue would contain primarily a rule, prescription, or clue of the nature of a secret cipher, which, once known, would enable him, by merely applying it, to change at will all words of his own speech into those of the foreign one. His childish idea was, in fact, a pushing to the extremity of mathematical precision, what is everywhere known as Grimm's Law, and an and aggrandizement of rules to ideal completeness. Thus, he assumed that the words of the required language were always to be found somewhere latent in the words of the given language by those who had the art to uncover them, such art being furnished by the books aforesaid. When, therefore, having noted that the packet bore the postmark of Christminster, he cut the string, opened the volumes, and turned to the Latin grammar, which chanced to come uppermost, and he could scarcely believe his eyes. The book was an old one, thirty years old, soiled, scribbled wantonly over with a strange name in every variety of enmity to the letterpress, and marked at random with dates, twenty years earlier than his own day. But this was not the cause of Jude's amazement. He learned for the first time that there was no law of transmutation, as in his innocence he had supposed. There was in some degree, but the grammarian did not recognize it. But that every word in both Latin and Greek was to be individually committed to memory at the cost of years of plodding. Jude flung down the books, lay backward along the broad trunk of the elm, and was an utterly miserable boy, for the space of quarter of an hour. As he had often done before, he pulled his hat over his face and watched the sun peering insidiously at him through the intersectus of the straw. This was Latin and Greek, then, was it? This grand delusion? The charm he had supposed in store for him was really a labor like that of Israel in Egypt. What brains they must have in Princeminster! and the great schools, he presently thought, to learn words one by one up to tens of thousands. There were no brains in his head equal to the business, and as the little sun-rays continued to stream in through his hat at him, he wished he had never seen a book, that he might never see another, that he might have never been born. Somebody might have come along that way who would have asked him his trouble and might have cheered him by saying that his notions were further advanced than those of his grammarian. But nobody did come, because nobody ever does. 
and under the crushing recognition of his gigantic error, Jude continued to wish himself out of the world. Chapter 5 During the three or four succeeding years, a quaint and singular vehicle might have been discerned moving along the lanes and by-roads near Marygreen, driven in a quaint and singular way. In the course of a month or two, after the receipt of the books, Jude had grown callous to the shabby trick played him by the dead languages. In fact, his disappointment at the nature of those tongues had, after a while, been the means to still further glorifying the erudition of Christminster. To acquire languages departed or living, in spite of such obstinacies as he now knew them inherently to possess, was a Herculean performance, which gradually led him on to greater interest in it than in the presupposed patient process. The mountain weight of material under which the ideas lay in those dusty volumes called the classics piqued him into a dogged, mouse-like subtlety of attempt to move it piecemeal. He had endeavored to make his presence tolerable to his crusty maiden aunt by assisting her to the best of his ability, and the business of the little cottage bakery had grown in consequence. An aged horse with a hanging head had been purchased for eight pounds at a sale, a creaking cart with a witty brown tilt obtained for just a few pounds more, and in this turnout it became Jude's business thrice a week to carry loaves of bread to the villagers and solitary cotters immediately round Mary Green. The singularity aforesaid lay, after all, less in the conveyance itself than in Jude's manner of conducting it along its route. Its interior was the scene of most of Jude's education by private study. As soon as the horse had learnt the road and the houses at which he was to pause a while, the boy, seated in front, would slip the reins over his arm, ingeniously fix open, by means of a strap attached to the tilt, the volume he was reading, spread the dictionary on his knees, and plunge into the simpler passages from Cesar, Virgil, or Horace, as the case might be, in his purblind, stumbling way, and with an expenditure of labor that would have made a more tender-hearted pedagogue shed tears. Yet somehow, getting at the meaning of what he read and divining rather than beholding the spirit of the original, which, often to his mind, was something else than that which he was taught to look for. The only copies he had been able to lay hands on were old Delphin editions, because they were superseded and therefore cheap. But, bad for idle schoolboys, it did so happen that they were passably good for him. The hampered and lonely itinerant conscientiously covered up the marginal readings and used them merely on points of construction, as he would have used a comrade or tutor who should have happened to be passing by. And though Jude may have had little chance of becoming a scholar by these rough-and-ready means, he was in the way of getting into the groove he wished to follow. While he was busied with these ancient passages, which had already been thumbed by hands, possibly in the grave, digging out the thoughts of these minds so remote yet so near, the bony old horse pursued his rounds, and Jude would be aroused from the woes of Dido by the stoppage of his cart, and the voice of some old woman crying, 
Two today, Baker, and I return this stale one. He was frequently met in the lanes by pedestrians and others without his seeing them, and by degrees the people of the neighborhood began to talk about his method of combining work and play, such they considered his reading to be, which, though probably convenient enough to himself, was not altogether a safe proceeding for other travelers along the same road. There were murmurs. Then a private residence of an adjoining place informed the local policeman that the baker's boy should not be allowed to read while driving, and insisted that it was the constable's duty to catch him in the act and take him to the police court at Alfredston, and get him fined for dangerous practices on the highway. The policeman thereupon lay in wait for Jude, and one day accosted him and cautioned him. As Jude had to get up at three o'clock in the morning to heat the oven and mix and set in the bread that he distributed later in the day, he was obliged to go to bed at night immediately after laying the sponge, so that if he could not read his classics on the highway, he could hardly study at all. The only thing to be done was, therefore, to keep a sharp eye ahead and around him as well he could in the circumstances, and slip away his books as soon as somebody loomed in the distance, the policeman in particular. To do that official justice, he did not put himself much in the way of Jude's bread cart, considering that in such a lonely district the chief danger was to Jude himself, and often on seeing the white tilt over the hedges he would move in another direction. On a day when Folly was getting quite advanced, being now about sixteen, he had been stumbling through the Carmen Seculaire on his way home. He found himself to be passing over the high edge of the plateau by the brown house. The light had changed, and it was the sense of this which had caused him to look up. The sun was going down, and the full moon was rising simultaneously behind the woods in the opposite quarter. His mind had become so impregnated with the poem that, in a moment of the same impulsive emotion which years before had caused him to kneel on the ladder, he stopped the horse, alighted, and glancing round to see that nobody was in sight, knelt down on the roadside bank with open book. He turned first to the shiny goddess, who seemed to look so softly and critically at his doings, then to the disappearing lumiere on the other hand, as he began, Phoebe Silverumque Potens Diana. The horse stood still till he had finished the hymn, which Jude repeated under the sway of a polytheistic fancy that he would never have thought of humoring in broad daylight. Reaching home, he mused over his curious superstition, innate or acquired, in doing this, and the strange forgetfulness which had led to such a lapse from common sense and custom in one who wished, next to being a scholar, to be a Christian divine. It had all come of reading heathen works exclusively. The more he thought of it, the more convinced he was of his inconsistency. He began to wonder whether he could be reading quite the right books for his object in life. Certainly there seemed little harmony between this pagan literature and the medieval colleges at Christminster, that ecclesiastical romance in stone. Ultimately, he decided that in his sheer love of reading, he had taken up a wrong emotion for a Christian young man. He had dabbled in Clark's Homer, but had never yet worked much at the New Testament in the Greek, though he possessed a copy, obtained by post from a second-hand bookseller. He abandoned the now-familiar Ionic, 
for a new dialect, and for a long time onward, limited his reading almost entirely to the Gospels and Apostles in Griesbach's text. Moreover, moreover, on going into Alfredston one day, he was introduced to patriotic literature by finding at the booksellers some volumes of the fathers which had been left behind by an insolvent clergyman of the neighborhood. As another outcome of this change of groove, he visited on Sundays all the churches within a walk and deciphered the Latin inscriptions on the 15th century brasses and tombs. On one of these pilgrimages, he met with a hunchback old woman of great intelligence who read everything she could lay her hands on, and she told him more yet of the romantic charms of the city of light and lore. Thither, he resolved as firmly as ever to go. But how to live in that city? At present, he had no income at all. He had no trade or calling of any dignity or stability whatever on which he could subsist while carrying out an intellectual labor which might spread over many years. What was most required by citizens? Food, clothing, and shelter. An income from any work in preparing the first would be too meager. For making the second, he felt a distaste. The preparation of the third requisite he inclined to. They built in a city, therefore he would learn to build. He thought of his unknown uncle, his cousin Susanna's father, an ecclesiastical worker in metal, and somehow medieval art in any material was a trade for which he had rather a fancy. He could not go far wrong in following in his uncle's footsteps, and engaging himself a while with the carcasses that contained the scholar souls. As a preliminary, he obtained some small blocks of freestone, metal not being available, and suspending his studies a while, occupied his spare half-hours in copying the heads and capitals in his parish church. There was a stonemason of a humble kind in Alfredston, and as soon as he had found a substitute for himself in his aunt's little business, he offered his services to this man for a trifling wage. Here Jude had the opportunity of learning at least the rudiments of freestone working. Some time later he went to a church builder in the same place, and under the architect's direction became handy at restoring the dilapidated masonries of several village churches roundabout. Not forgetting that he was only following up this handicraft as a prop to lean on while he prepared those greater engines which he flattered himself would be better fitted for him, he yet was interested in the pursuit on its own account. He now had lodgings during the week in the little town whence he returned to Mary Green Village every Sunday evening, and thus he reached and passed his nineteenth year. Chapter 6 At this memorable date of his life he was, one Saturday, returning from Alfredston to Mary Green about three o'clock in the afternoon. It was fine, warm, and soft summer weather, and he walked with his tools at his back, his little chisels clinking faintly against the larger ones in his basket. It being the end of the week, he had left work early, and had come out of the town by a roundabout route which he did not usually frequent, having promised to call at a flour mill near Crescombe to execute a commission for his aunt. He was in an enthusiastic mood. 
he seemed to see his way to living comfortably in Christminster in the course of a year or two, and knocking at the doors of one of those strongholds of learning of which he had dreamed so much. He might, of course, have gone there now in some capacity or other, but he preferred to enter the city with a little more assurance as to means than he could be said to be felt at present. A warm self-content suffused him when he considered what he had already done. Now and then, as he went along, he turned to face the peeps of the country on either side of him. But he hardly saw them. The act was an automatic repetition of what he had been accustomed to do when less occupied, and the one matter which really engaged him was the mental estimate of his progress thus far. I have acquired quite an average student's power to read the common ancient classics, Latin in particular. This was true. Jude possessing a facility in that language which enabled him with great ease to himself to beguile his lonely walks by imaginary conversations therein. I have read two books of the Iliad, besides being pretty familiar with passages such as the speech of Phoenix in the ninth book, the flight of Hector and Ajax in the fourteenth, the appearance of Achilles unarmed and his heavenly armor in the eighteenth, and the funeral games in the twenty-third. I have also done some Hesiod, a little scrap of Theodices, and a lot of the Greek Testament. I wish there was only one dialect all the time. I have done some mathematics, including the first, sixth, and the eleventh and twelfth books of Euclid, and algebra as far as simple equations. I know something of the fathers, and something of Roman and English history. These things are only a beginning but I shall not make much farther advance here, from the difficulty of getting books. Hence, I must next concentrate all my energies on settling in Christminster. Once there, I shall so advance with the assistance I shall there get, that my present knowledge will appear to me but as childish ignorance. I must save my money, and I will, and one of those colleges shall open its doors to me, shall welcome whom now it would spurn, if I wait twenty years for the welcome." I'll be the D.D. before I have done. And then he continued to dream, and thought he might become even a bishop by leading a pure, energetic, wise Christian life. And what an example he would set. If his income were five thousand pounds a year, he would give away four thousand five hundred in one form or another, and live sumptuously, for him, on the remainder. Well, on second thoughts, a bishop was absurd. He would draw the line at an archdeacon. Perhaps a man could be as good as learned and yet as useful in the capacity of archdeacon as in that of a bishop. Yet he thought of bishop again. Meanwhile, I will read, as soon as I am settled in Christminster, the books I have not been able to get hold of here. Livy, Tactivus, Herodotus, Eschles, Sophocles, Aristophanes. Ha, 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 hoity-toity. The sounds were expressed in light voices on the other side of the hedge, but he did not notice them. His thoughts went on. Euripides, Plato, Aristotle, Lucretius, Epictetus, Seneca, Antonius. Then I must master other things. The fathers thoroughly, bade in ecclesiastical history generally. A smattering of Hebrew. I only know the letters as yet. Hoity toity. But I can work hard. I have staying power in abundance, thank God. And it is that which tells. Yes, Christminster shall be my alma mater, 
and I'll be her beloved son, in whom she shall be well pleased. In his deep concentration on these transactions of the future, Jude's walk had slackened, and he was now standing quite still, looking at the ground as though the future were thrown thereupon by a magic lantern. On a sudden something smacked him sharply in the ear, and he became aware that a soft cold substance had been flung at him, and he had fallen, and had fallen at his feet. A glance told him what it was, a piece of flesh, the characteristic part of a barrow pig, which the countrymen used for greasing their boots, as it was useless for any other purpose. Pigs were rather plentiful hereabout, being bred and fattened in large numbers in certain part of North Wessex. On the other side of the hedge was a stream, whence, as he now for the first time realized, had come the slight sounds of voices and laughter that had mingled with his dreams. He mounted the bank and looked over the fence. On the further side of the stream stood a small homestead, having a garden and pigsties attached. In front of it, beside the brook, three young women were kneeling with buckets and platters beside them, containing heaps of pig chitlings, which they were washing in the running water. One or two pairs of eyes shyly glanced up, and perceiving that his attention had at last been attracted, that he was watching them, they braced themselves for inspection by putting their mouths demurely into shape, recommending their rinsing operations with a suddity. "'Thank you,' said Jude severely. "'I didn't throw it, I tell you,' asserted one girl to her neighbor, as if unconscious of the young man's presence. "'Nor I,' the second answered. "'Oh, Annie, how can you?' said the third. "'If I had thrown anything at all, it shouldn't have been that.' Oh, I don't care for him. And they laughed and continued their work, without looking up, still ostentatiously accusing each other. Jude grew sarcastic as he wiped his face and caught their remarks. You didn't do it? Oh, no, he said to the upstream one of the three. She whom he addressed was a fine, dark-eyed girl, not exactly handsome, but capable of passing as such at a little distance, despite some coarseness of skin and fibre. She had a round and prominent bosom, full lips, perfect teeth, and the rich complexion of a cochin hen's egg. She was a complete and substantial female animal, no more, no less. And Jude was almost certain that to her was attributable the enterprise of attracting his attention from dreams of the humaner letters to what was simmering in the minds around him. "'That you'll never be told,' she said deedily. "'Whoever did it was wasteful of other people's property. Oh, that's nothing. But you want to speak to me, I suppose?' "'Oh, yes, if you like to.' "'Shall I clamber across?' or will you come to the plank above here? Perhaps she foresaw an opportunity, for somehow or other the eyes of the brown girl rested in his own when he had said the words, and there was a momentary flash of intelligence, a dumb announcement of affinity in posse between herself and him, which, so far as Jude Folly was concerned, he had no sort of premeditation in it. She saw that he had singled her out from the three, as a woman is singled out in such cases, for no reasoned purpose of further acquaintance, but 
in commonplace obedience to conjunctive orders from headquarters, unconsciously received by unfortunate men when the last intention of their lives is to be occupied with the feminine. Springing to her feet, she said, "'Bring back what is lying there.' Jude was now aware that no message on any matter connected with her father's business had prompted her signal to him. He set down his basket of tools, picked up the scrap of offal, beat a pathway for himself with his stick, and got over the hedge. They walked in parallel lines, one on each side of the stream toward the small plank bridge. As the gir girl drew nearer to it, she gave, without Jude perceiving it, an adroit little suck to the interior of each of her cheeks in succession, by which curious and original maneuver she brought as by magic upon its smooth and round surface a perfect dimple, which she was able to retain there as long as she continued to smile. This production of dimples at will was not unknown operation, which many attempted, but only a few succeeded in accomplishing. They met in the middle of the plank, and Jude, tossing back her missile, seemed to expect her to explain why she had audaciously stopped him by this novel artillery instead of by hailing him. But she, slightly looking in another direction, swayed herself backward and forward on her hand as it clutched the rail of the bridge, till, moving by animatory curiosity, she turned her eyes critically upon him. "'You don't think I would shy things at you?' "'Oh, no. We're doing this for my father.' who naturally doesn't want anything thrown away. He makes that into dubbin. She nodded toward the fragment on the, on the grass. What made either of the others throw it, I wonder? Jude asked, politely accepting her assertion, though he had very large doubts as to its truth. Impudence. Don't tell folk it was I, mind. How can I? I don't know your name. Ah, no. Shall I tell it to you? Do. Arabella Dawn. I'm living here. I must have known it if I had come this way, but I mostly go straight along the high road. My father is a pig breeder, and these girls are helping me wash the innards for black puddings and such like. They talked a little more, and a little more, as they stood regarding each other and leaning against the handrail of the bridge. The unvoiced call of woman to man which was unuttered very distinctly by Arabella's personality, held Jude to the spot against his intention, almost against his will, and in a way new to his experience. It is scarcely an exaggeration to say that till this moment Jude had never looked at a woman to consider her as such, but had vaguely regarded the sex as beings outside his life and purposes. He gazed from her eyes to her mouth, thence to her bosom and to her full round naked arms, wet, mottled with the chill of the water, and firm as marble. "'What a nice-looking girl you are,' he murmured, though the words had not been necessary to express his sense of her magnetism. "'Ah, you should see me on Sundays,' she said piquantly. "'I don't suppose I could,' he answered. "'That's for you to think on. There's nobody after me just now, though there might be in a week or two. She had spoken this without a smile, and the dimples disappeared. Jude felt himself drifting strangely, but could not help it. "'Will you let me?' "'I don't mind.' 
By this time she had managed to get back one dimple by turning her face aside for a moment and repeating the odd little sucking operation before mentioned. Jude, being still unconscious of more than a general impression of her appearance. Next Sunday, he hazarded. Tomorrow, that is. Yes. Shall I call? Yes. She brightened with a little glow of triumph, swept him almost tenderly with her eyes in turning, and, retracing her steps down the brookside grass, rejoined her companions. Jude Folly shuddered his shouldered his tool-basket, and resumed his lonely way, filled with an ardor at which he mentally stood at gaze. He had just inhaled a single breath from a new atmosphere, which had evidently been hanging around him everywhere he went, for he knew not how long, but had somehow been divided from his actual breathing as by a sheet of glass. The intentions, as to reading, working, and learning, which he had so precisely formulated only a few minutes earlier, were suffering a curious collapse into a corner he knew not how. "'Well, it's only a bit of fun,' he said to himself, faintly conscious that, to common sense, there was something lacking, and, still more obviously, something redundant, in the nature of this girl who had drawn him to her, which made it necessary that he should assert more sportiveness on his part as his reason in seeking her. Something in her quite antipathetic to that side of him which had been occupied with literary study of the magnificent Christminster dream. It had been no Vestal who chose that missile for opening her attack on him. He saw this with his intellectual eye, just for a short fleeting while, as by the light of falling lamp one might momentarily see an inscription on a wall before being enshrouded in darkness. And then this passing discriminative power was withdrawn and Jude was lost to all conditions of things in the advent of a fresh and wild pleasure, that of having found a new channel for emotional interest hitherto unsuspected, though it had lain close beside him. He was to meet this enkindling one of the other sex on the following Sunday. Meanwhile, the girl had joined her companions, and she silent resu silently resumed her flicking and sousing of the chitlings of the in the pellucid stream. Catchton, my dear? laconically asked the girl called Annie. I don't know. I wish I'd thrown something else other than that, regretfully murmured Arabella. Lord, he's nobody, though you men think so. He used to drive old Drusilla Folly's bread cart out at Marygreen till he prenticed himself at Alfredston, since he's been a very stuck up and always reading. He wants to be a scholar, they say. Oh, I don't care what he is or anything about him. Don't you think it, my child? Oh, don't ye? Ye needn't try to deceive us. What you stay talking to him for if you didn't want him? Whether you do or whether you don't, he's as simple as a child. I could see it as you courted on the bridge, when he looked at ye as if he'd never seen a woman before in his born days. Well, he's to be had by any woman who can get him to care for her a bit, if she likes to set herself to catch him the right way.' 